Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Have you ever thought about how very often you're called upon to make judgments every day? I'm not talking about decisions, making decisions. I'm talking about making moral judgments. It's so very common. I don't think it even registers for us most of the time, whether it's the latest political news or celebrity gossip, or an update that you see on social media, or words of a friend, we are constantly expected to take in, judge, and respond to an endless stream of situations and even accusations. If you don't believe me, try and keep a catalog this week of how many accusations you hear, whether it's on the TV, on the internet, in person, uh, we take in far more of these things than we may realize, whether uh, through the media, through our friends or coworkers. I think it's fair to say that we're exposed to far more information and far less truth than any previous generation in human history. The nature of our communications technologies and the sinful heart of man have made that unavoidable. And, and what's ironic about all of this is that our culture has supposedly embraced relativism and this, this ethic of tolerance, which is really a false tolerance. We're told, don't judge, let everybody do what they think is best. But our culture is incredibly judgmental. Every day we're bombarded with accusations about all manner of people, from the president to celebrities to whoever's making the latest headlines for their alleged misdeeds. We're, we're summoned, we're called to take the side of the accusers and to cast our scorn and our indignation, our disapproval on those who violated whatever the standard of the day happens to be. Time out. <laughs> this is too good. It's too good for this distraction. I need some ushers down here. Uh, please escort the duck. Uh, to a, can I get somebody that can grab a duck? Anyone? And just, just, I don't mean to kill it, I just mean take it away from here. Thank you, John, yes. This is, is He'll well, come right back. Well, yeah, I'm afraid if we do that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, let's get Don't tell PETA, don't post this on YouTube. I know, I know. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, the dad joke would be that that was a foul move, but I won't, I won't make that joke. Okay. Thank you, John. So, back to our topic. Every day, I, well, it's one of the things that strikes me, um, and I'm not making a statement one way or other about the president, but have you considered how many allegations you've heard against the president in the last four years? And this, is, this isn't unique. How many accusations you take in every day? What are Christians to do with all of this? What are we supposed to think about this? How are we supposed to respond to this? 
These are really important questions because if we don't understand justice from a biblical perspective, we're going to be led by our feelings or by fear of man. Think about how much of our current cultural conversations about justice, whether that's sexual justice or racial justice or political justice, are being driven by the loudest voices and the the concern to be on the supposed right side of history, which generally just shows ignorance of what has actually happened in history. Of course, this is all complicated by the reality that injustice is actually everywhere in our world. It's a fallen world. There are so many injustices. And and the near omnipresence of our media and our access to them, especially through social media, means we're more aware of injustices, whether real or imagined, whether local or global, than we could reasonably be expected to take in and to process faithfully and intelligently, let alone do anything about them. So ours is a day and age of outrage, of instant outrage, of video clips and conspiracy theories and division and mistrust. What are Christians to do with all of this? Last week, Peter took us through a famous biblical story of injustice, David's sin with Bathsheba, his murder of Uriah. And though David repented and the Lord showed mercy, there was also a fearsome pronouncement of judgment, which is why we're starting in chapter 12 this morning. Do you remember this? Look at verse 9, chapter 12, 2 Samuel, verse 9. This is the Lord speaking to David. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? It's, It's actually Nathan speaking on behalf of the Lord. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. The consequences for David's sin were severe. The sword will never depart from his house. His wives will be given to another man publicly and his child will die. And of course, unstated here is the reality that his sins will become broadly and publicly known. Remember, the the Psalms are Israel's songbook. And Psalms 32 and 51 in particular are David's psalms of repentance after his sin with Bathsheba. So David wrote songs for the people of Israel to sing about his very public and scandalous sins. Of course, David's not the only one affected here. If the sword will not depart from his house, what does that mean for his family and for the nation? And what of these wives who will be given to another man? And what of the child who dies for his sins? You see, injustice is everywhere in this story. And it's all around us as well. We both suffer from the sins of others, and we cause others to suffer by our sins. Now, these are not simple topics, and so we have to recognize that. If we're going to apply biblical justice to the the challenges and injustices of our own day and in our own lives, 
and if we're going to act justly toward others as well. Justice in this age is both straightforward and complicated. It's straightforward because God's word is true and it's clear, it's authoritative. So if we want to think and feel and act righteously in anything that we do, we must know what God's word says and then apply it faithfully in what we say, think, and do. But justice is also complicated because there's so many layers and so many characters and so many things going on simultaneously. There's so much both justice and injustice that it requires great wisdom and patience and process to walk things through in a manner that's faithful to God. And that becomes especially challenging in a day that requires instant outrage. So what can guide us in dealing with justice and injustice in our own day, in our own Lies. Well, we, we have to understand that this world is always undergoing a battle between two kingdoms. And I'm not talking about the Democrats and the Republicans. There are two competing stories of what is true and what is good and what is beautiful. And our allegiance is always to one kingdom or to the other. That's inescapable. There's no Switzerland. There's no neutrality in this war. We can't help but choose sides in the battle. When you hear an accusation, you're never neutral. You're always engaging one kingdom or the other. We are either living for God and his glory according to his word, or we're part of the rebellion against him. Those are the only two choices. And that brings us to the theme that comes from our passage today. Seek first God's kingdom, so you will honor him in this fallen world. Seek first God's kingdom, so you will honor him in this fallen world. Today we're going to see God's justice play out in the life of David and and of the nation of Israel in a very, very messy way. There are some deeply unsatisfying resolutions to situations in today's text. Today's story concerns especially David's son Absalom, his rebellion against David, his rebellion against God. But that story is also playing out as God's judgment on David for David's sin. So these, these six chapters are filled with so many characters and so many subplots and so many stories of both faith and injustice that we won't be able to cover them in 35 or so minutes. Uh, i got six chapters, you know, 35 minutes. So I'll do what I can. So please go read these chapters later and consider how these things walk out. How do we apply justice to all that goes on Uh, And I think we're going to get at that today by looking at it under three headings. First, a scorned son, and then a suffering father, and then some tragic endings. So a scorned son. Last week, Peter summarized for us one of the most tragic stories in the Bible. In 2 Samuel 13, it's the story of Amnon, who's David's oldest son, and then Tamar, David's daughter, uh, Amnon's half-sister. And the story of how Amnon violated his half-sister out of his supposed love for her, which later revealed its true character of hatred. David does not deal with Amnon. We're told that he's furious. But like Eli earlier in 1 Samuel, David does not address his son's wickedness. So, so Tamar's brother, Absalom, he, he witnesses this evil, this lack of justice for his sister, and he nourishes hatred for his half-brother. And he bides his time. And after a couple of years, he, he hatches a plot to avenge his sister. So he goes to David with this plan to invite David and all the king's sons to, to a party 
And David begs off, but Absalom succeeds in getting Amnon invited. And when they're away from Jerusalem, he has his servants murder Amnon. And then Absalom flees into self-imposed exile. So this is a story of deep injustice, really deep injustices. And it sets the stage for where our text begins today in chapter 14. It begins with Joab, the commander of David's armies and, and David's nephew. And of course, one of the challenges with history is you always have so many names and so many characters. And, and here we've got so many related characters. So try and uh, think through all that's going on here. So he's, he's David's nephew. He's the commander of David's army. And he comes to David. And he has a plan. He wants to convince David to bring Absalom back. He sees that David's troubled by all that's going on with Absalom. So he recruits a woman to tell David a story about the supposed injustice with her two sons. And then she turns the table and says, actually, this is a story about you and your sons. And so David's convinced by this story to bring back Absalom, but he doesn't affect a full restoration. He allows Absalom to return to Jerusalem, but not to enter into his presence. Absalom's still facing some manner of punishment, even though it's, it's indirect, it's undefined. But then in verses 25 to 27 of chapter 14, the narrator in, inserts this, kind of a, this short aside about Absalom. He tells us that Absalom is the most handsome man in all of Israel. He's literally unblemished from head to toe. And he has this unimaginable mane of hair that he cuts once a year at five pounds a shot. And he has three sons and a daughter named Tamar. This whole paragraph is ominous because the last time that a contender to the throne of Israel was described for his looks, his name was Saul. And that didn't end well for the nation. And then beginning in verse 28, we see Absalom begin to take initiative. After two years, he's had enough of David's banishment. And so he forces Joab to come to him and he sends him to intercede with David. And Joab complies. And so this chapter ends with Absalom in David's presence, paying homage to David and David kissing his son. And it seems like a happy reunion. But chapter 15 makes clear that's not Absalom's true intention. Now that he's been restored to royal favor, he's going to press his advantage. He, he gets a chariot and horses, which are instruments of war. He gets 50 men to run before him, and he positions himself at the gates of the city, which is where the men of standing would conduct business and settle disputes. And he begins a highly skilled and a fairly subtle campaign of flattery and recruitment. Look at chapter 15, verses 2 to 6. Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Absalom was clearly a, a very sympathetic and a very attractive figure. His, his family had been grievously wronged by the crown prince. And after that attack, he, he loved and provided for his abused sister. 
He's also a man of action. And so when it seems that Amnon's going to escape justice, he takes matters into his own hands. So he's young and he's strong and he's handsome and he's accomplished. He's got a story calculated to win hearts. And when he feigns humility, he won't let anyone honor him. He lifts them up and kisses them. When he does that, when he offers a different vision of justice for what the, the kingdom of Israel would look like under my administration, he was gladly received. He stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Do you see any parallels to our day? Is there anyone out there peddling stories and positioning themselves to steal your heart for unjust causes? Of course there is. We're, we're in an election season. But it's more than that, isn't it? It's all around us and all the time. And sometimes it even is us manipulating, flattering others to win their support for unjust causes. When we hear a tale of misdeeds and, and we hear accusations against another and we don't apply biblical standards of justice, we, we open ourselves to all manner of unrighteousness. We, we can insert ourselves as sympathizers, as counselors or confidants or even as judges into situations that ought not to concern us. It's so attractive to, to find a situation where we can ride into the rescue or where we can look down on others self-righteously. We may think that we're trying to be helpful, but by, by failing to act justly, our help is actually sinful. Do you realize how very near and attractive that is to our hearts all the time? Gossip and slander and busybodiness are truly epidemic in our day. And I use that word advisedly, right? COVID's real, it's deadly. This is far more prevalent and far more destructive than COVID-19. It, it destroys families. It destroys churches. It destroys nations. Injustice. So what should the men of Israel have said to Absalom when they were greeted at, by him at the city gate? Was it true that David wouldn't hear their cause? We know that's not true. We just read an account of David hearing this fabricated tale of this woman and her sons. That's the case that actually persuaded him to bring Absalom back. So here's Absalom misrepresenting the duly appointed king and stealing away his support. Were there no men in Israel who discerned his wickedness? Didn't he realize that he was actually using them? A millennia later, a thousand years later, Paul would highlight the same problem in the church in Rome in chapter 16, verses 17 to 18. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive the naive who think that they're helping, who think that they're being compassionate and sympathetic, are actually being deceived by people who are looking to satisfy their own desires. They're not serving Christ. An accusation is a serious thing. And of course, where's David during all of this? We know that he's a wise and capable king. He must have known what Absalom is doing. This is right in public. It's at the city gates. But again, he does nothing. You have to be careful not to read into the text what's not there explicitly, but it seems reasonable to me, given how David responds in the chapters ahead, that he's struggling with guilt over what he's done. 
We'll certainly see that guilt in, in how he engages Absalom in the future. David knows that he doesn't have a leg to stand on morally. He's just as compromised as Absalom, and the judgment of God has already been pronounced over him. Then in verses 7 and following, Absalom furthers his plan. He goes again to David with a ruse. This time he wants to go to Hebron to, to pay a vow that he supposedly made when he was in exile. And so David grants permission, and Absalom summons his supporters, but he also summons 200 men who the text is very careful to say. And we have to notice when the text is calling out things, it's very clear and careful to say they went innocently and unknowingly. They weren't Absalom's supporters. And while he's at Hebron, he has himself proclaimed king. So you see the challenges of justice here. What Absalom is doing is illegitimate and wicked. He's unjust. And the men supporting him are unjust. But the 200 men who went innocently, what are they supposed to do? If they declare their loyalty to David in that setting, they're dead. If they declare their loyalty to Absalom, they're supporting a wicked rebellion. They're probably officials. They're probably men of standing who Absalom has very skillfully taken away from Jerusalem so that in this moment of crisis, David's hand is weakened. They're in a tough spot. So what would it mean for them to seek first the kingdom of God so they would honor him in this fallen world? I'm going to leave that question hanging and move to the second point, a suffering father. David also faces a decision. When he hears of Absalom's coup, what should he do? Well, he decides to flee, and and as it becomes clear, he decides to do so because of faith in God. He knows that God raises up kings and he removes kings. He knows the judgment that he's under personally. And as Peter showed us last week, he's trusting God for the removal of the consequences, God's timing, God's way. He's going to trust God with that. So as David flees, we're provided with snapshots of various characters that he, he encounters. We meet Ittai the Gittite. I love that name. Ittai the Gittite, a Philistine who declares his loyalty to David in a way that reminds us of Ruth and Naomi and how Ruth declares her loyalty to Naomi. We meet Abiathar and, and Zadok, the priests who, who are taking the ark out of Jerusalem to go with David, and David sends them back. He says, no, 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 the ark stays in Jerusalem. It's, it's not a talisman. It's not a rabbit's foot, right? It stays there, but he sends them back as well to be his spies. And we meet Hushai, one of David's counselor, who David also sends back to frustrate the plans of Absalom. Hushai plays a vital role in this whole crisis. So David flees Jerusalem, but he's not, he's not fatalistic. He's not passive. He's not apathetic. Throughout the story, we see him both entrusting himself to God and working wisely to protect himself and his men and to undermine Absalom. It, it's both. It's faith and action. We're not fatalists. It's not, oh, whatever happens, right? We know whatever happens is God's will. He ordains all things. And we know God's revealed will that he calls us to embrace and seek to enact. It's both. Right? We don't get to control history, God does. But under God's sovereign providence, we're to walk in faith and honor him. Then in chapter 16, David meets Ziba, who you may remember is the servant of Mephibosheth, uh, Saul's grandson whom David had honored and invited to his table. And Ziba comes with two things. He comes with provisions for David and his men, and he comes with accusations against his master. 
He tells David that Mephibosheth has abandoned his loyalty to David, that he actually thinks that maybe this is his chance to be king, which is an entirely implausible story. And that leads to another injustice. David believes these unsubstantiated allegations, and he gives Ziba all of Mephibosheth's possessions. He doesn't employ biblical standards of justice, and so he commits injustice himself, even as he's being wronged. And Ziba, for his part, is very shrewd, right? He, he supports David, uh, so he's got a, a mark in David's column, right? But then he, and, he, and he gets the possessions, and then he goes back into the land in case Absalom actually does end up prevailing. So either way, he's kind of in. And then David encounters Shimei, who's also a Benjamite. And he curses David. He believes that this is God's judgment on David for his sins against Saul's family. And David's companions, again, they just want to kill this man, but David restrains him. He says, this is, this is a consequence for my sin. And, and he, in that, he prays that the Lord would look upon this and forgive him and restore him to the kingdom. Well, in the meantime, Absalom is entering Jerusalem, and with him is Ahithophel, who is a highly esteemed counselor, and also, coincidentally, the grandfather of Bathsheba. And so in 2 Samuel 16.23, we're told, Now in those days the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. But even as Ahithophel's coming, so also comes Hushai, David's man. And later today, you should read chapter 16, verses 16 to 19, and realize that while Absalom is interpreting Hushai's words as pledges of loyalty to him, Hushai is actually declaring his loyalty to David. When he says, long live the king, he means the king, the true king, not this usurper. So the chapter closes with Ahithophel counseling Absalom to go into the ten concubines that David had left behind to watch over his home. By doing so, Absalom would make clear that he is utterly committed to destroying David's kingdom and his family, and that would strengthen those who came to his side. So they set up a tent on the roof of the palace, and Absalom does just that. He's fulfilling the judgment of God against David, and he's violating the law of God and committing a deeply wicked act. And what of Ahithophel, this great counselor? He's supporting both a wicked rebellion and counseling this king to commit wicked acts. Where is his understanding of justice? Of course, think for a moment of these concubines. Through no fault of their own, they are victims of gross injustices. Later, when David is restored to the throne, they'll basically enter a state of widowhood. They're treated as damaged goods, and though they'll be provided for, they're also basically treated as unclean for the remainder of their lives. What would you say to one of these concubines who came to you for counsel? She has no recourse for further justice. There's nothing she can do legally to improve or change her situation. How should she think about God? and his sovereign plan for her life. What would it mean for her to trust and to honor him? This is a story of great injustice. And there's no easy answer, is there? But the world is filled with injustices like this, isn't it? 
You know, there's, there's a utopianism that often accompanies election seasons and it certainly accompanies this one. If we just get this person elected or this judge appointed or this policy enacted, we'll be on our way to glory. But that's deeply ignorant. This side of Genesis 3, this world is filled with injustices. There are many good things as well, no doubt, and thank God, but there are many, many injustices. And these concubines demonstrate that. Their lives are, under the sovereign plan of God, marked by deep injustice. Maybe your life is as well. Is God still good when injustice prevails? Is God still good when injustice prevails? Our responses to injustice reveal both what we think we deserve which often has to do with our, the, the accuracy and the depth of our understanding of our sin, our rebellion against God. And they also reveal whose kingdom we're committed to seeking. And I don't, I don't want to resolve this tension for us neatly this morning. I, I want us to, to feel it and to face it. This is a messy world with many injustices. And if this is, if this is a live topic for you, I'd encourage you when you go home today to read First Peter 2. Slowly and prayerfully, take your injustices to the Lord. Cry out to him. Chapter 17 then brings us in to the debate of how Absalom should actually fight David. Right? He's declared himself king, he's gathered his supporters, he's ready, but he hasn't actually done much yet. And so Ahithophel says, be urgent. Let's get 12,000 men. Let's go at night and let's just focus on killing David. That's all we need to do is kill David. And it's actually good, though unrighteous, counsel. David probably had around 2,000 men. So if Absalom had followed this counsel, he probably would have prevailed. But enter Hushai. He skillfully counters Ahithophel's arguments. He urges Caution, he succeeds in slowing down Absalom, which also gives him time to get word to David. And why did his counsel prevail? Well, chapter 17, verse 14 tells us, And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Absalom is fighting a losing battle, and he doesn't even know it yet. The Lord is against him. The average Israelite would have still been stunned by the news of Absalom's rebellion, and here the Lord is already bringing his plans to frustration. So this chapter ends with David being warned, with several men coming and bringing more supplies and preparing him for the battle. And that brings us to our final point, which is a tragic ending. Chapter 18 begins with what's really a, a pretty brief account of this battle where 20,000 Israelite lives are lost in this civil war. And then it spends more time, beginning in verse 9, on the tragic end of Absalom's life. As he's fleeing pursuit, he gets caught in a tree, and most commentators think that he's caught by his hair. So the source of his pride becomes his downfall. And of course, we, we can think of Deuteronomy 21-23, where to be hung in a tree is to be cursed by God. So Absalom is caught fast, he's discovered, and then he's killed by Joab. The man who brought him back to Jerusalem is the man who kills him. 
He's buried unceremoniously in the forest. He's covered by a pile of rocks. And so that becomes his monument, his legacy. He dies a traitor's death outside of the promised land at the hands of Joab. Now, we haven't discussed Joab very much, but he's a very shrewd political operator. All throughout this story, he's making the best political moves. He, he, he works to bring Absalom back when it suits his purposes, and now he kills Absalom, contrary to what David had expressly said in 18.5 about dealing gently with the young man. Because he knows that to leave rebellion unpunished is to invite greater trouble. And then when David starts to mourn for Absalom, he, he rebukes him. He says, you're, you're, you're spoiling this victory for your troops. So Joab is very shrewd, but he's not really concerned with righteousness or justice. He's just the consummate pragmatist. He does whatever needs doing. Well, after Absalom's defeated, David returns to Jerusalem, but this is a very different royal entry. On the way back, he pardons some of his enemies, which is politically expedient, and he rewards those who supported him. But his return highlights the schism that still exists between the tribes of the north, called Israel, and then Judah. These tensions don't ever go away, just as God had promised in chapter 12. And next week we'll see another rebellion in chapter 20. David's sins have brought devastating consequences to the whole nation. So as, as we pull this all together, we need to think, who, who comes across as commendable in this story? Who acts in a way that honors God? Well, it's certainly not Absalom. Though he had genuine grievances, though he'd been wronged, he responds with wickedness and injustice. And, and it's certainly not those who supported Absalom. right? Israel had a king. He was appointed by God, and their alliance with him was unjust. Well, what about David? Well, in some ways, his behavior is commendable. He entrusts himself to God. He shows humility under the hand of God's discipline. He extends mercy to his enemies. He takes appropriate action to fight while making clear that his hope is not in military might. He's looking to the Lord to restore him. But he also deals unjustly with Mephibosheth. He takes away his possessions based on unsubstantiated allegations. He fails to deal righteously with his sons when they act wickedly. And lest we forget, it was his sin that occasioned this whole sordid uh, drama in the first place. And so from what I can see, the most commendable figures in this tale are largely minor characters. The men who support David as the true king and who work for his good. They bring him provisions in the wilderness. They work to frustrate the plans of the wicked. They fight against the rebels. And that's why I chose that theme of seek first God's kingdom, the true king, so you will honor him in this fallen world. I ask Doug to come up. You see, we, we all face injustices in this world. How are we to act? Maybe we're like those 200 men who, who went innocently with Absalom only to find out that he was stealing the throne. Or, or we're like the concubines who through no fault of our own have had great injustice committed against us and then were set aside. What are we to do in those moments? Where should we look? Of course, if we're honest, we know that we're also like Absalom. We use occasions when we're treated unjustly to, to nourish self-pity and anger. We're frustrated that no one's doing anything to help me. And so we take matters into our own hands and, and we 
uh, uh, commit wrongs against others. We're convinced that our cause is just, and so we persist in sinning against God. Injustice in this world is always both outside of us and within us. Even for God's people who've been forgiven and cleansed by our Savior, our indwelling sin can lead us to justify wickedness. Is there no way out of this cycle of sinning and being sinned against? And here we can remember the one who told us first to seek first his kingdom, Jesus himself. He was and is the true king of Israel, but unlike David, he committed no sins that might have justified rebellion against him. Instead, he was unjustly slandered. He was abused and mistreated. He took upon himself the penalty, the wrath for all of the injustices that all of his people have committed. And though his death was unjust, he did not deserve to die. His death fully accomplished God's justice. For in the death of Jesus, the wrath of God against the sins of his people was fully expended. It was fully satisfied. He absorbed in himself the torments that we earned. Like a lamb to the slaughter, he went willingly for us and for our salvation. And one day he will return, not as a lamb, but as a lion. You see, the final answer to injustice in this age is the justice that will come on that day. When Jesus returns, he returns as judge. He comes to bring all wickedness to light and to mete out full and final justice. He's the only one who could hope to do it. He comes to usher in the kingdom that will never end, the kingdom that knows only joy and peace and righteousness. He comes to reward remarkably to reward those who have looked to him and worked for his advantage. And that kingdom's already broken into this age. It's not fully realized yet, which is obvious from just looking around, but it is here. It has begun, and his people have received the Spirit of God as a seal, as a foretaste of that promise that's more glorious and more certain and more secure than anything we might be tempted to hope in here and now. Jesus is coming. Justice is coming. That is either terrifying or deeply comforting. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.